Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today we're going to be finishing uh, this segment of what we refer to as the Game of Thrones where we're covering Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Just off and on we come back to it. And in this fourth segment we've been looking at uh, the reign of David in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. And I'm going to conclude this portion of it by reading the closing verses of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 26 to 30. And uh, we're going to read here at this, this section near the end of 1 Chronicles. So uh, everything will be up here on the screen. You can follow along. You can also follow along in the booklet. We've got this written down. I'll be using the New International Version this morning. So hear now the word of the living God. David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over Israel 40 years seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. His son Solomon succeeded him as king. As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer together with the details of his reign and power and the circumstances that surrounded him and Israel and the kingdoms of all the other lands. One of the things that's always interesting to figure out when you see something that is a long, epic story is how do you conclude it? And sometimes, for example, in the history of TV, some of the TV shows that have been considered the greatest over a long period of time and kind of had a story arc their endings were very controversial. For example, Seinfeld, when it concluded, was kind of considered the greatest sitcom in history, but people did not like the final episode. They didn't like the way they tried to end it after all those years. Sopranos was a show about the mafia, and after seven years, its ending was very, very controversial. There have been a number of them that are that way. On the other hand, there have been some books that were very epic, like Lord of the Rings, that a lot of people really did like the ending. They felt like, wow, that was the way to summarize this long story. With everywhere we've been, we came back, and you ended it the way that it needed to be. And this is because, how does one end a long, epic story? And I bring this up because, how do you end a long, epic story like the life of David? This is the 20th teaching we've done on David's reign, trying to cover 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And that's not because we're just trying to be really detailed and silly about it. It's a lot of material between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And we actually did 11 weeks on David's rise to power from the time he got anointed when he was a young teenager through Goliath and fleeing from Saul and all those things until he became king. So when you look at all of the material in the Scripture... How does one bring this to a landing? How does one end the story of David? Now, we could have looked at two ways, because actually Kings kind of ends it one way, which is not the usual way Scripture looks at it. We're going to look at 1 Chronicles to see how Chronicles ends David's story, because it'll answer for us 
how does God in Scripture view David's legacy and how should we view the legacy of David? So let's dive in and talk about David's legacy. Notice here in Chronicles, there's no question, it ends David's story on a very positive note. When you look at 1 Chronicles 29, verses 26 to 28, notice it says, David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. There's a first hint because as you follow through, he's the last king that entirely reigns over all Israel. At the end of Solomon's reign, I mean, actually Solomon makes it through, but everything is starting to break apart. And so there's this note that, no, David's the one who's really united and ruled over the kingdom. Secondly, his reign is for 40 years, which is a long, successful reign. Thirdly, the the writer tells us he died at a good old age. He had a long life. He had wealth. He had honor. All of these are things that are showing the greatness of David. All in all, it's about as positive a description that could be given of a king over Israel. And what's interesting here is, as I mentioned, if you go to Kings, if you read 2 Samuel and then go into 1 Kings, you find that at the end of David's life, as he's trying to hand things over to Solomon, there's actually a fair amount of struggle going on. And David doesn't always do so well in the midst of that. But in Chronicles, there's none of that. David's legacy is a good legacy. Now, the the, the question comes out then is, why does Chronicles do it this way? And in fact, what I want to point out today is that's actually the dominant note. This is David's legacy in Scripture. There are multiple things that we see that point to this fact. First, David's the gold standard by which both good and bad kings are judged. As you go through Kings and Chronicles, they list all the other kings, and they always go back and are compared to David. For example, in 2 Kings 16.2, and I'm just going to run through a few examples really quickly, we read about Ahaz, who was a very bad king. And we're told Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now, Ahaz is actually a couple hundred years after David. He's a long time after David. So father means David's his ancestor. But notice, the kings are still being compared. And this king who's not good, when I want to say you're not good, I say you're not like David. Because David was good. He was a good king. Ahaz is not like David, therefore he's a bad king. But you also have kings who are kind of a mixed report. For example, Solomon. In 1 Kings 11.4, we read, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So Solomon here is a mixed report. Ahaz is bad. Solomon is good and bad, but notice even there, it's his heart's mixed, not like David. David had a heart that was turned after God. We can look, what about a good king? Well, if we look down at Jehoash in 2 Kings 14.3, he's one of the, the really good kings, we read, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as, as his father David had done, and everything he followed, the example of his father Joash. So he's pretty good, but notice again, but not as good as David. He's a good king, but David is the, is the really good king. Well, What about if I pick the best of the kings? Well, the two greatest kings after David come through are Hezekiah and uh, Josiah. 
And so I'll just take Josiah. This is right before the exile. Josiah is as good a king as you can find. And here's what the scripture records in 2 Kings 22, verse 2. Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So the best thing you can hope for as a king is to be said, this guy's good. He's like David. He walked the way David did. So David is the gold standard for kings. Whether you are bad, whether you are mixed, whether you're pretty good or you're as good as they come, you're always just trying to get up to where David was. He is the standard by which all other kings are judged. But not only that, God tells us as the story goes along in the history of Israel that when his people Israel deserved judgment, and they deserve to have their cities conquered and to be carried away into exile. Listen to what God says in 2 Kings 19.34. God says, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David my servant. Hundreds and hundreds of years after David, and God says, look, David's gone, but because of David, you all you're sinful. You deserve judgment. But because of David, I'm going to remember and I'm going to delay judgment. Could you imagine if, say, 100 or 150 years from now, America deserved judgment and God sent a prophet and he said, you deserve judgment and I was going to bring judgment, but then I remembered George Washington. And Washington was so good, I decided I'm not going to judge you because of George Washington. That's a pretty amazing statement that God delays judgment on Israel and he does it for David's sake. But thirdly, we read even after the exile, when they reference David, David is not referred to as David the sinner or David the mixed bag. He's David the man of God. In the book of Nehemiah, we read that they're rebuilding the temple. And as they rebuild it, I won't read all of the names and everything, but in Nehemiah 12, 24, it lists all the new Levites who are going to be ministering at the temple, and it says that they're going to be giving praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the other, as prescribed by David, the man of God. So notice it's not just, well, they're doing this because David said we should do it. First off, they still remember what David said. That still governs how they're going to do worship. But secondly, he's David, the man of God. And then you move on after, uh, before and after the exile, and you remember the great hope of Israel, because none of the other kings could really live up even to what David did. And they need something more, and God starts speaking. There comes this heart cry from Israel, and God increasingly is revealing that I'm going to send the Messiah. The king is going to come who's going to rule over the people, but notice how this Messiah is referred to in the scripture. In Jeremiah 23, 5, I could have given a bunch, I'm just going to pick out two. In Jeremiah 23, 5, we read, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is a king. He's going to finally be the king you need. He's going to be just. He's going to be right in the way he rules. And what I'm doing is I'm raising him up to David. David is central in what we're talking about. In Ezekiel, as the exile has already come, and there's the hope, what's going to happen to Israel? Are all the covenant promises shattered? God says, no, I'm going to send Messiah. And here's what he says in Ezekiel 34, 
23 and 24. This is part of the new covenant. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jesus picks this up in John chapter 10 and says, I'm going to bring the two together, and there's going to be one shepherd, me. I'm the shepherd over the people of God. But notice in Ezekiel, the promise is David. The Messiah is spoken of as being the fulfillment of David. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, we see this is the record throughout the New Testament. The very opening verse of the New Testament is the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Paul summarizes his gospel in 2 Timothy 2.8 and says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. And interestingly enough, he uses the same two things in Romans chapter 1 where he says, Jesus, according to his human nature, is a descendant of David, and according to the spirit of holiness, he was proved to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Same two points. So being descended from David is central. And if we go all the way to Revelation, the very next to last thing that Jesus says, you know, he speaks a benediction at the end, but the next to last thing he says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, he says, John, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony of the churches. I am the root and offspring of David. Right at the end of Scripture. So there is this summary throughout Scripture. In the remainder of all of Scripture, David is the gold standard for kings. He's the one whom God keeps covenant. He's the man of God. He's the ultimate type for the Messiah. In many ways, he's counted as one of the greatest followers of God. This is kind of how the long, epic tale is going to end. But if you followed the tale, you might have a question. What about David's sins? What about all the mess with Bathsheba, Amnon, and Tamar? What about Absalom? What about, we didn't even cover it when we went through it, but the census that he took that brought judgment upon Israel, all of these other things. There's hardly a whisper of them in the rest of Scripture. Why is that so? Why would God end the story this way? Well, the reason God ends the story this way is because David enjoys a grace-based legacy. He enjoys a grace-based legacy. Now, it's important to recognize Scripture does remember David's sins. When we've studied 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, we've seen David's sins in great detail. And those books are written after David has died. God's not forgotten them. They are there, and we note them. And in the text we're looking at today, it refers us back to those writings. Notice in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 29 and 30, he says, As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they're written in the records of Samuel the seer which is what we know as the books of Samuel. And so the writer's saying, look, there, there were the sins of David, and you can go read about those elsewhere, but I'm ending on another note, because you need to understand and remember, Samuel and Kings are written to Israel to explain why they went into exile. Chronicles is written to end the story and give them hope for coming back from exile. And so Chronicles is giving us a little bit different perspective. And it reminds us that these other books have the details. And you can go and you can read. And in fact, 
in First Chronicles, I mean in First Kings 15, verses 3 to 5, and in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, in Jesus' genealogy, there are hints about David's sin with Bathsheba. And there are those reminders. But in probably 30 times David's mentioned after his death, that's the only two where there's anything negative. Everything else is positive. Everything else would leave you wondering, what about all the stuff that David did? So the dominant note is what David did right, not his sins. Why is this? And this is what I want us to grasp this morning. God sees David, and God sees David's legacy and speaks David's legacy through eyes of grace. David had sinned. David had fallen short in many ways. And it's not even, well, he did those when he was young, but as he got older, everything got better. Because if you go read 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, oh no, David at the end of his life is still lacking faith. He, he's not showing wisdom. He's even bitter in certain areas. Right to the end of his life, David's obedience was always mixed. The reason David's legacy is so positive is not because David had cleaned up all of his sins before he died. That wouldn't give you and I very much hope, would it? But, so that's not the answer. The, the reason that this is true is because we can thank our God that our Lord sees David through the eyes of grace, not of law. That's not how God views him. The emphasis is not on David's failure, but it is on his heart for God, his faith, and the things that he did right in his attempt to serve God. That is where God puts the emphasis in the legacy of David. And it's not just the legacy of David. This is, in fact, how God treats his people, all of his people. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, is the, the single most concise example of this. In Hebrews 11, we read in the first two verses, now, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And he's going to start giving a record of all of the saints. But he says right at the beginning, I want you to understand, the reason they're commended, the reason they are in what we refer to as Faith Hall of Fame is not because they did everything right. It's because they had faith. Something in them cried out and said, I believe to the promises of God, and therefore God commends them. And so we go through and we read, for example, that Noah, by faith and holy fear, he built an ark to save himself and his family, and by his faith he condemned the world and became an heir of God. And it's all of this wonderful stuff about Noah's faith, and nothing about the fact that Noah came off the ark and got drunk and then pronounced a curse on his own grandson. It's not there. And then you move on, for example, Abraham. And how Abraham believed God, and he trusted God. He trusted that God would give him Isaac. And then he was willing to even trust God to raise Isaac from the dead if Isaac was sacrificed. And Abraham gave up everything to go after the city whose architect and builder is God. He trusted that God was going to give him an inheritance. And there's nothing about Abraham doubting God. There's nothing about him disobeying, nothing about Sarah, tell them you're my sister, nothing about, hey, how about if I take Hagar and try and fulfill God's promises by my own means? None of that is there. It is simply Abraham, the man of faith. There's no mention in Hebrews 11 of Isaac preferring Esau and having to be tricked to give the blessing to the son that God had chosen for the blessing to go to. There's no mention that Jacob's, whose very name meant deceiver, 
was in fact the greatest deceiver probably in all of Scripture and constantly was conniving and working. None of that's there in Hebrews 11. He simply worships children and blesses them as he leans on his staff. There's no mention of Moses' fears and failures or how Moses did not enter the promised land because as law, he was left out in the wilderness. There's no mention of any of that. These and many other sins are passed over because they have been covered by Christ's blood. Because of Christ and the gospel, the sins are removed, they are no longer mentioned, while faith and obedience are maximized and eternally recorded for the people of God. That is grace, and that is what God does. It's a whole record through the Old Testament. It's not just David. That is how God chooses to remember his people. And friends, this is grace. Our sins, my sin and yours, are forgiven, and they are blotted out, while faith-fueled obedience is magnified and eternally enshrined before God and his people. That's what grace means for us. And that's why Chronicles ends this way and doesn't drag out. Well, let me remind you of everything David did wrong because the final word is mercy triumphs over judgment. And don't ever believe it's anything else. Don't ever believe there is some other way that God is going to respond. Now, how do we apply the word? What, what does this mean for you and I? There's two things. One, I want us to be instructed by this. And then secondly, I want us to be comforted. The first thing in the instruction is, do I view others through a lens of grace or a lens of law? How do I view you? If God does this with David, would I be there saying yay and amen? Or would I be saying, whoa, whoa, God, I've got another report I want to bring. Do I think I'm wiser than God? and how to write the legacy. This is a huge problem in our culture today. We do not know how to honor flawed people. We've lost the ability to do this. We devour one another over our sins and shortcomings. People can do all kinds of things right, but then when they are caught doing something wrong, and unless your name is Jesus, you've done plenty wrong, then that is it. You are shelved. I don't want to hear no further honor to go to you. Just watch what our culture does. And we are even worse about this, especially for previous generations. We are guilty of chronological snobbery. Well, they don't live up to my standards, as if somehow a couple hundred years ago they were supposed to live to our standards. And so whatever they did that is wrong that's all that I want to talk about. It's getting to where we can have no heroes left. And that is simply not how God does it. So the fact is, if I want to look at the founding fathers of our country, are there plenty of things I can point out they did wrong? Ooh, yes. If we're going to use that as a standard, then we got to go level every you know, memorial and monument down in downtown D.C., because they all did foolish, stupid things that were, were not, they're not even debatable. Yes, this was wicked, this was bad, just like David did. And there is no way to honor 
anyone if my standard is I will honor you as long as you don't ever do anything that I disapprove of, anything that is wrong. What that means is I'm never going to honor anybody. So the questions that come to us, and this is really important um, that if you think about it, this goes to the commandment, honor your father and mother. So that, I'm going to give you a promise. This is so important to me. And if you ever notice, it blows me away. First table is how we honor God. The second table of the law is how we honor God and the way we treat others. And they're really, you know, you've got murder, which is more serious than adultery, which is more serious than stealing, which is more serious than slander, which is more serious than coveting. Except for, oddly enough, where is honor your father and mother placed in that chain? Before murder. Kind of gives you a view of how important God thinks honoring your father and mother is. Is that honor your father and mother unless they do something that was wrong? No. How many of our mothers and fathers have done things wrong? All of them. How many of us as parents have done things wrong? All of us. And honor your father and mother is more than just your biological mom and dad. It's talking about previous generations and people whom God has placed over you. Can you honor them in spite of their flaws? That's the question. Can you do it in spite of their flaws and failures? So let me tease it out and ask a couple questions for us to think through that. Do I tend to maximize the sins of others, or do I extend them grace as God has done to me? Do I maximize their sins, or do I maximize grace? When I respond to others who sin. Another way of looking at it, and I'll have to explain a word here, what we're dealing with is what was known as a Manichaean view. The Manichaeans were people that lived in like the third and fourth century. And the Manichaeans said, it's black and white. Everything is either good or it's evil. People are either good or they're evil. Well, if that's a true view, then we're all on the one side of the equation, which is evil, and Jesus is on the other side. But see, the Manichaeans were a cult. They were wrong. They were heretics. It's what, it's what Augustine had to leave to come in because nobody is that way. And if I approach you with a Manichaean view, then I will praise you and I will be with you until you do something wrong. And then I will shelve you. So do I have a Manichaean view of people? They're either good and in my blessing, or they are evil, and I don't want to hear about them, and all I'm going to speak is I'm going to, no matter what they're doing, I'm going to say, but they did this. Okay, but they did this. Am I able to recognize the sin of others and yet honor them for the good they have done? Can I recognize, yes, they're flawed, they're fallen, but... Here are things they did that are good, for which I am grateful. Can I live in that way? To not be able to do this, what we're talking about, is the worst sort of pride and arrogance. That's really what it amounts to. What it says is, because, I mean, you know, Jesus tells us pretty much how you treat others is how you can be treated. You know, that scary verse in the Lord's Prayer that we should want to cut out, right? Father, forgive us just like I forgive everybody else. So when I go to prayer, do I want the Lord to say, well, I would listen, but you know, 
I do remember when nine years ago, who would want that to be what happens to us in prayer? So it's the worst sort of pride and arrogance to think that I can do that, but then expect God to not do it to me. And none of us want God to do that to us. Humility says, I have been extended grace, and I'm going to extend grace to others. And you know what? I'll leave it in the hands of God for how he's going to work this out. If we can't do this in our day and with generations who've gone before, we will lose the gifts of the church, the culture, and our families. We will burn the thing to the ground. I'm taking a little bit of time to go over this because this is a huge problem in our culture right now. We cannot honor anyone. We want to look and say, yeah, but. And that is the problem right there. What we need to say is, look, yeah, all those things you can go back and read in the records. They're there. But what we're here to talk about is how to honor them. Now, that's the the first part. Now what I want to do is turn to to comforting for us. The second question that's primary for us today is, Do I know that God views me through eyes of grace? Do you know that God looks at you through the same lens that he looked at David? Many believers struggle, George. Many believers struggle with the sense that God always views them through their sin, that God is always looking at them through their sin. We dread the day. Have you ever heard this? I'm going to get to heaven one day, and God's going to play back a tape. And it's going to be all those things you thought about, all those things you did, they're going to be there. And when we think about that, who wants that? Do you want your thought life played out for the universe to watch? I don't want what I've done played for the universe to watch, much less things that went on in my head that I at least stopped from doing. And we believe, we buy into the idea that somehow that is going to happen, that that is somehow our legacy. And what God's going to do is say, well, I would have loved to have given you an inheritance, but watch it all burn, baby, because this is what you did wrong, and that is what you did wrong. And we labor under this sense of guilt. But God sees us just like he sees David, through eyes of grace. God sees you and he sees me the same way he sees the people in Hebrews 11. Not recounting every sin, not recounting every failure, but saying, I see faith. And I look at that and I magnify that and I bless that. And everyone else applaud and enjoy there's an example of faith. And let me show you another child who had faith. That is how God views you and me. Through eyes of grace. Friends, this is grace. Your sins, my sins, our sins are forgiven. They are blotted out. While our faith-fueled obedience is magnified and eternally enshrined before God's people. God will not sit there to embarrass you on judgment day. That is not the heart of your Father towards you. Jesus always tells us, if we being evil fathers know how to do good, how much more good would God do? How many of you would bring your child in and say, I just want to embarrass you in front of everybody else by pointing out all the things you did wrong? Is that the way we would respond to our child? Why would we think our father would do that? But there's a sneaking suspicion that goes on in many of our hearts that that's exactly what God would do. So do you and I believe that? 
how do I think God views me as his child? When God looks at me, how do I think he views me? Do I think he primarily is looking at my sin, my failures, my flaws, where I didn't fulfill things? Is that how I think he views me? Or do I know that in Christ I am totally forgiven? That God declares me as totally righteous, as if I had never sinned, and as if I had positively obeyed all of God's law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. Honestly, ask yourself an answer. In my heart, in my gut, which way do I think God views me? Because friends, as long as it's the way that God's looking for the flaws, we are always going to live under like a, a deep, heavy blanket of guilt. And that is not the way our Father views us. Rejoice, friends. Your legacy is built on God's grace, not your failures. Not your failures. And let this motivate us to serve Him out of love and gratitude. See, our life of obedience is gratitude, but I can't have gratitude if I've got the suspicion that God is always looking and waiting to do the gotcha thing. But that's not the heart of our Father. See, David understood at his best that, that God responded to him with faith, out of David's faith. He, he responded, he blessed him. That's what David liked. Read the same thing. You can pick all those Old Testament saints. You can look in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus loves Peter. Peter's a mess. But there's something in him that says, but I believe. And God says, you know what? The rest of that stuff, everything you've done, I restore. I forgive. I cleanse. I bring back. And so what we're going to do to conclude this teaching and this series is we're going to come down here to this table because this is the table of grace. Through this table, we're reminded it's broken body and shed blood. That's what's guaranteed this. And God is not going to write your law out of your legacy out of law because if he does, he has to undo broken body and shed blood. That body has been broken. That blood has been shed once and for all to secure that your legacy is built on grace. My legacy is built on grace. We are reminded here that God receives us and he sees us through grace. And here we receive fresh grace to go out this week to say, that's not my report. Satan, I know what you're saying. It's worse than you can imagine. But my God sees me through grace, not through the judgment. See, Satan, do you all know, what does the word Satan mean? He's the accuser. That's what the word means. Satan is the accuser. And he stands there to accuse us day and night before God. That's what he stands to do. But thanks be to God for everything he says. We have Jesus standing there, and I will take Jesus seven days a week and twice on Sunday, friends. Much better to have him in our corner, and he stands and he pleads in your behalf. And the Father does not listen to Satan. He does not listen to the accuser, and you and I should not either. And that's what we're reminded of here at this table. And so we're going to come, we're going to remember, we're going to receive God's grace this morning. I want to remind you, you don't have to be a member of our church to come to this table. You do have to be a believer. It means you have to understand your only hope 
for a godly legacy is good news. As Tony said, good news, not good advice. What God has accomplished for us in Christ, not what we're trying to accomplish. If you believe that, then this morning we encourage you to eat with us. I also want to remind us that we do have a gluten-free option, so if you need gluten-free bread, please raise your hand. Other than that, we're going to come to the table today, and what I want to encourage you to do, if the Lord brings a sin to your mind, confess it. But don't sit there. This is not the time for introspection. This is the time to look and say, broken body, shed blood. I have a legacy eternally that's been won for me by Christ. And let Christ's body and blood put down the voice of the accuser. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from it, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we come to this table this morning, we do confess our sins, but Lord, we rejoice and magnify in the grace that is given to us through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray you would come as we eat and drink, you would minister grace and pardon and assurance to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, let's hold on to them. We will take them together in just a couple of moments. And I encourage you again, meditate on the legacy that is yours in Christ. Father, this morning we admit that our conscience is pricked by our many failures. So we often fear your gaze, thinking all you will see is the ways we have failed. And we even are fooled into thinking that in eternity our sins will overwhelm any good we have done. But Lord, today we remember the grace you offer us in Christ. Grace that forgives our failures for the sake of Christ. Grace that maximizes our obedience. Grace that rewards even our faltering attempts to follow your will. Lord, we realize that all of this is available to us only through Christ. As the son of David, he came to reign over your people. And by your grace, his obedience is counted as ours. Through his broken body, you see us through the eyes of grace, forgiving our failures and magnifying our faith-filled obedience. So we thank you for the broken body of our Lord Jesus, given that we might be restored and made whole. Take and eat. Father, like David, we have failed in many ways, wandering in thought, word, and deed. And such failures would overwhelm us were it not for the blood of Christ. For his blood was shed to purify us from all sin and unrighteousness. 
By his blood, we are made utterly pure, without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, a bride fit for our king. All of this is ours only because of the blood of Christ. So we lift this cup, and as your people we say, thanks be to God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Lord, we stand amazed at your grace. Because of grace, our sins are forgiven and removed, sins past, present, and future. And through grace, you remember our attempts to obey, choosing to see faith rather than failure, obedience rather than sin. And for all of this, we are eternally grateful. Holy Spirit, come and empower us this week to live as the forgiven children of God. When we are assailed by doubt, strengthen our faith. When we are tempted by sin, confirm us in righteousness. When we are tormented by a guilty conscience, remind us of our status in Christ. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. And I encourage you to receive the blessing that is yours in Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Go in his peace. Amen. www.brcc.church